For the sake of the world, burn like a fire in me. For the sake of the world, burn like a fire in me. Come on, can we give Jesus some praise? For the sake of the world, burn like a fire in me. Whoa. For the sake of the world, burn like a fire in me. And then catch a flame, the whole city. Did you all know that you're a transformer. Every person in here, did you know that you're a transformer? I'm not talking about that movie with Shia LaBeouf running around chasing cars, cars shooting at each other, beautiful cars too. Like, why would you mess that car up? <laughs> pew, pew, pew. That's the whole movie. That's all I heard. Pew, 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 pew. That's not what I'm talking about. I would compare us to an electrical power transformer. Sometimes you see those in your neighborhood. They're big, they're small. Sometimes they're like gated off in the middle of a random spot. And for lack of a better scientific term, a transformer traps electrical power. Then what it does is it either boosts the power up and sends it out, or it powers it down and sends it out. And a transformer is so important because when a transformer goes down, that could kill the power in your neighborhood. That's probably even happened to you. There was some kind of storm, a transformer went down, hours, maybe even days later, your power was restored after they fixed that transformer. And we're transformers because we've been given the power and the authority from Jesus Christ through the filling of the Holy Spirit to transform our communities. That means that when we walk into a situation, we're called to transform it. If there's chaos, if there's a lack of peace, if there's animosity, Christ inside of us can bring peace. If there's discouragement, if people are down, if you ever walk into a room and you see like, ooh, it's heavy in here, you are called to bring transformation. You're a transformer. I'm a transformer. And what is being said in the book of Amos is, hey, transformers, transformers, where's your power? Where's your power? People are a mess in Israel at that time. The city is a mess, sexual immorality, people doing the worst things they could possibly think of. Dying, rotten in jail. The city is decaying. Israel is a mess. And it's like our transformers, Israel's transformers at the time, were broken. There's a spiritual power outage in the city. And now the city is under darkness. So destruction is basically the next natural step. And God's going to bring his judgment. He will destroy them. And eventually he did. As transformers... Us today, when we see someone that might need some help or maybe we hear a truthful message about people who are disadvantaged or people who don't have access to the same resources that we have access to, we tend to be convicted, rightfully so. We're convicted by that message, and that's good. That's a sign of the Spirit living inside of you. But what we don't know is that conviction is the same thing as coming to a fork in the road in your life. 
When you have that conviction inside, it's like God is setting before you a fork in the road. And really, he's asking you, either you're going to satisfy that conviction or you're going to ignore it. Conviction before you, fork in the road, either you satisfy the conviction or you ignore it. And the things we have working against us is different than what happened in Amos' day. In Amos' day, there was this general belief in God. There was this general stories had been passed down stories. They were God's chosen people, right? They had this general idea of God, even if they were disobeying. But today we live in an age of skepticism in our churches, conspiracy theories in our churches. So now when we hear truth from a very reliable source, somehow it doesn't hit us the same way it used to. And we as truth bearers, truth people, how do we take that truth and see transformation? Do we continue to enjoy the luxuries of a safe worship environment? Or do we go out and fight that very skepticism in the world about faith and about church that we help to create by ignoring society? The gospel has given us an option to live out God's idea for his people. And that's the Jewish concepts of mishpah and tzedakah. Hopefully I'm saying it right. And that means to restore justice and righteousness. To be more specific, the translation of what it actually says is to take deliberate action to correct injustice and create righteousness. So in comes Amos. He's a regular degular dude. And from New York, that's something that we say regular degular. You may not understand it, but it basically means the most basic person you could find. He's a regular dude. And he probably, he was a shepherd. And he also dealt with sheep and goats, and then he sold some trees on the side. Fig trees, just in case you were wondering. And in the reign of Jeroboam II at the time, under which Amos lived, Jeroboam II was this military genius kind of guy. He brought a lot of great wealth to the city. He conquered a lot of places to Israel, for Israel. And in the Bible Project video online, you can search it up on YouTube, it explains the whole book of Amos in an overview. And one thing caught me when I watched that video. Here's what it said. Israel's great wealth had led to apathy. That apathy caused people to then worship what they owned, which is idolatry. That then turned into injustice and a neglecting of the poor. Israel's great wealth led to apathy. The apathy caused them to then worship what they owned. And then in worshiping what they owned, they turned away from the poor and injustice and neglecting of the poor began to reign in the city. But Jeroboam and the Jewish people at the time would have been like, yo, life is great. We're prospering. Things are amazing. We're a great nation. That's what they would have said. But the prophets are like, actually, this is the worst time ever in Israel's history. Or at least the worst time that he had ever seen. And Amos is what you would call a spiritual thermometer, right? When Amos speaks or when a prophet speaks, they diagnose the spiritual temperature of the nation. And so how, how he chooses to diagnose it is a very creative way. He's actually collections of letters and poems. And what he does is he begins to rebuke not just Israel. First, he starts with the nations around. He starts going one by one and you get some. 
I rebuke you and you have done this and you guys did this to God and y'all did this to Israel and you stole from here and you put this person in this bondage and he rebukes all those nations. And then what we find when we step back and look at the picture is that at the center of those rebukes sits Israel. You could literally draw a picture around what he was doing and at the center in the crosshairs is Israel and they got a bullseye on them and that's the bullseye of the Lord's justice. And the thing about God's justice is, in the Old Testament, everybody's dead when he comes. No one's good. Everybody. And when we think of justice today, we kind of think of it the way God does. They're wrong. Make them pay. They deserve it. But when God does justice today, he sends us. He sends his kids. He sends his transformers. So God sends Amos. And today I am super hype and excited about how God is going to send you. Let's open up to Amos chapter 2. I'll go to two different chapters, but Amos chapter 2, verse 6 through 10, if you want to go to there. Otherwise, it'll be on, on the screen. I'll have um, it'll be an NLT version, just a little clearer of a version. And I'll read from that. Okay, Amos 2, 6 through 10. This is what the Lord says. The people of Israel have sinned again and again, and I will not let them go unpunished. They sell honorable people for silver and poor people for a pair of sandals. They trample helpless people in the dust and they shove the oppressed out of the way. Both father and son sleep with the same woman. What? corrupting the holy name of God. At their religious festivals, right, their churches, their gatherings, they lounge in clothing that their debtors put up as security. In the house of their gods, they drink wine bought with unjust fines. Then down in chapter 5, verse 10 to 14, it says, how you hate honest judges. How you despise people who tell the truth, Israel. You trample the poor, stealing their grain through taxes and unfair rent. Therefore, though you build beautiful houses of stone, you will never live in them. Though you plant lush vineyards, you'll never drink wine from them. For I know the vast number of your sins and the depths of your rebellion. You oppress good people by taking bribes and deprive the of justice in court. Do what is good and run from evil so that you may live. I'll say it again. Do what is good, he says to him, to, to them, and run from evil so that you may live. And just to make it a little simpler for us, I want to point out seven deadly injustices that Amos chooses to highlight in these chapters, these, these verses that we read. Number one, human slavery. They're buying and selling people in this time. This is believer. These are, these are people who say they know God. Buying and selling people. Today in America, over 400,000 people in the U.S. are slaves today. Here's how. They're either in forced marriages in America, sexual servitude in this country, and state-imposed labor. State-imposed labor is another word, way of saying People in prison working for nothing. Actually, there's people in jails right now answering phone calls for companies. Getting paid pennies to do so. State-imposed labor. 
Two, actively ignoring the poor. Three, we pass down sexual sin to our children. When I think of that, I think of porn. And when I was first introduced through porn, through a family member, passed down to me. Passing down a heritage of ungodliness. Four, building wealth off the depths of poor people. I think of payday loans. Oh, don't worry, you got a car. We'll just take your car as security and here, take this money, even though you can't afford it, take this money and go. 18-year-olds that go to college and there's a credit card company right there waiting for them, happen to me. On the corner, like, hey, come get a credit card. Don't know anything about money. That's what I think of when I think of that. Building wealth off the depths of poor people. The debts of poor people. Unjustice within the justice system. Six, unfair wages and high tax price gouging. And last but certainly not least, unlawful or insufficient representation in court for the poor. A justice system that favors the wealthy. Do any of those sound familiar? Remember, we said that America's great wealth, I'm sorry, I meant Israel's great wealth, had apathy. It led to apathy. A lack of interest, enthusiasm, or a lack of, and, and, and lack of concern for God. That apathy then caused people to worship what they owned. That's idolatry. That then turned into the injustice of neglecting the poor. That neglect manifested into three specific broken characteristics, which I believe that we today share with Israel. Number one, the wealthy ignore the poor. The wealthy ignore the poor. Number two, the poor are then sold, sold into some kind of slavery. And then the poor are denied legal representation. Do you see that anywhere around you? I see it in our justice system, to be quite frank. Amos talked about a justice system that was broken by religious leaders. We live in a time where our broken justice system is ignored by religious people. Let me tell you a true story. Jessica goes to this church. She was married to a man who was very abusive, right? They literally used to fight. They get into a fight. Jessica's attempting to defend herself. The gentleman... Uh, or someone called the police. The police come. The gentleman has scratches on him. The police determine that he should go free. She goes to jail. She has her son, though. So now she's in a dilemma. I don't feel I should be in jail, but I have a son. So what she does, in order to get out of jail quickly, she pleads to a misdemeanor. Gets out of jail quick, she can go but get back to her son. Jessica is now a, a, a victim, because otherwise... She has to wait for a hearing, maybe 30 to 90 days. That's just for them to hear your problem. 30 to 90 days. And then it's quite possible that she could be in jail up to six months for a trial. True story, guys. And this is all because she didn't have $500 cash to bail out. So she finds a way to get that money. And she takes... A mark on her record. Jessica is now a victim of what is called the cash bond system. The cash bond system is a system that is a symptom of the broken parts of our justice system. It's a major way that we see favoritism for the wealthy and, insuff and insufficient public legal representation at play in our society. In this system, if a person is arrested, they have to post bail as an accused person not a convicted guilty person. You get arrested, you post bail, you're still under accusation. You're not guilty yet. 
Paying this bond can get you out of jail quickly to defend yourself from a position of freedom. You can then head back to work, right? Pick up your kids, take care of your obligations while awaiting a hearing, and then maybe a trial should you decide to fight the case. This is kind of what happens like when you get a traffic ticket. If bailed out, one can defend themselves from a position of strength almost immediately. This disadvantages the working poor because if you don't have let's say $500 in cash on hand, you may seek to settle with a misdemeanor through a public defender, even if you're not guilty, just so you can get out of jail quickly. My neighbor and my friend, Brian, he's a lawyer in civil rights, and here's what he said to me. Public defenders can have anywhere from 200 to 800 cases on their dockets. Now, I don't know if that's, he was talking about Cleveland, but I'm like, 200 to 800 cases? Like, if something happens and I get arrested and I don't have that cash, I got to go to a public defender who has 200 to 800 names or 200 to 800 people that he has to defend as well as me. What do I then become? I'm just a number on a page. And that's not even the public defender's fault. That's, you know, he probably wanted to, or she probably wanted to, you know, help people when they got out of law school. But that's just a symptom of a broken justice system. It's a justice system that actually privileges those who physically, financially have versus those who do not have based on the cash that they have access to. The idea that justice is often for those who have and optional for those who have not, that is sin. The idea that justice is often for those who have and optional for those who have not, that's sin. The problem is I'm not an Old Testament prophet and I'm not an activist and sometimes I just feel like this voice crying in the wilderness that nobody's listening to and I feel like nothing that I can do really can make a substantial dent. I'm just a regular person. And to be honest, I was just as convicted as Israel would have been when they heard Amos is when I was trying to prepare this message. The cash bail thing, it rocked me, man, because I mean, well, how do we in our system today have you know, issues where people can't really get defended the right way? So I found this issue, and two weeks ago, the worst thing about it was I, hadn't, I didn't even care about it. It is in searching this that I discovered this issue. So while preparing, I started asking my lawyer friends a few questions. Number one, are there really flaws in the system? Two, help me to understand the cash bond system as a whole. I just want to be educated on it. And number three, what can I do to personally help fix it? I want to read something from Chuck Colson. He's a conservative voice in Christian America. He also works for many years with the Prison Fellowship. And this is a really large um, Christian organization that advocates for justice um, reform, criminal justice reform. On any given, given day, Chuck says, 460,000 citizens are incarcerated in the nation's jail prior to any trial or conviction. 460,000 citizens are incarcerated in our nation's jails prior to any trial or conviction. These men and women now comprise about 65% of the jail population. That's crazy. Our current system for determining pretrial detention should unsettle all American citizens who value the core principles of our legal order. Due process, robust defense counsel, and the ability for any American accused of a crime to vigorously challenge the charges and pleas against him or her. Studies have made it clear that individuals unable to pay bail who remain in pretrial detention face substantially different outcomes than the legal, in the legal system than comparable individuals who were released. 
A rigorous study of hundreds of thousands of misdemeanor cases in Harris County, Texas, found that the detained defendants are 25% more likely than similarly situated releases to plead guilty, facing the debilitating consequences of pretrial detention on themselves and their loved ones. Defendants face an immersed pressure to waive their constitutional rights to a fair trial. Therefore, augmenting a justice system where, that has an existence which relies on plea bargaining as a means of adjudicating charges. A justice system that doesn't rely on justice, it relies on plea bargains as a means to adjudicate justice, adjudicate charges. Furthermore, even when controlling for other factors, pretrial detention corresponds with higher probabilities of severity of sentence, both in type and length. The same study noted above also um, the same study noted above also found detained defendants in Harris County were 43% more likely to be sentenced to jail and receive sentences that are more than twice as long on average. In a Bible commentary that I was reading to study for this, G. Campbell Morgan said, in the divine government where God is the governor over all nations, privilege creates responsibility. In the divine government, where God is the head of all nations, our privilege creates a big responsibility. So here's lesson one. And if you read 12, Mark, Luke 12, 42, it would agree with what Morgan said. As much is given, much is required from you. The injustice here, it is not solved by giving guilty people a get-out-of-jail-free card. This injustice is solved by giving a human being who has not yet proven guilty an opportunity to properly defend themselves in court, whether they have money or not. It's solved by giving people who have not yet been proven guilty an opportunity to properly defend themselves, whether they have money or not. That is equity. That is the sin that Amos is desiring for God's people to combat. Equity in representation in court. Let me tell you what two famous rappers did. I don't really listen to their music, but, and they don't really proclaim, proclaim Christ or anything, but here's what happened. Two Atlanta rappers, Young Thug and Gunna, are putting their money in clout where their mouths are by posting bond for 30 inmates at Fulton County Jail. The article says that the rapper's comments were, there were people in jail sitting there for three or four years and couldn't get on bail, on bond. Three or four years didn't even go to trial. And they said, it's sort of like the bond that they had was higher than the crime that they did. Upon completing the releases, the families of those released 30 inmates were giving a home-cooked meal, and then they went on to enjoy their newly received freedom. The rappers said, it feels so good to the point where I start feeling like, that's why God put me here. He put me here to do this. Two rappers who don't claim to profess Christ go down to a jail with their lawyer to do what they felt compelled to do, and they walk away from that saying, I'm starting to feel like that's why God put me here. He put me here to do this. Wow. I wonder what Christians should do. 
James 2, 14, 18 says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and be well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself is nothing if it's not accompanied, accompanied by action. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You know what else rocked me as I was preparing for this message and I was listening to what God was saying? I realized in reading that I can be guilty of what I call an out of sight, out of mind Christianity. Like somehow if I don't see something right in front of me, it doesn't exist. Right? It's like I treat issues the way my kids say that they clean their room. <laughs> oh, daddy, the room's clean. Okay. And I'm going to do a four-point Jamaican inspection. This is not going to be... Oh, everything's under the bed. I don't... What, what, why y'all... They moved it out of their line of sight. And so now, the mess no longer exists. What I didn't know is that my ignorance, my ignoring, can eventually become sin by omission. But we excuse ignorance often. Let me share an interesting take on how we sometimes do this, um, what Amos was accusing the Jewish people of doing. He said, they trampled the helpless in the dust and they shoved the oppressed out of the way, in Amos chapter 2-7. Here's how I've done this. Tell me if you can relate. One thing I noticed when I started leading worship at churches that were located in the suburbs is that I would hear a lot about like how to manage finances and I would hear a ton about things that I didn't know. I ate it up and I applied it to my life, how to manage resources that you had and, and how to get out of debt and, you know, free yourself from the snare of the fowler. We hear it all the time. I even heard a lot of opinions, though, about how poor people should live. I myself am guilty of judging people in a difficult situation while I look down from my hill of abundance. But what we don't really share often is how to generate finance and how to grow out of poverty. The fact is the Bible talks about poverty a ton. And a lot of Jesus's gospel does not involve people staying poor. Jesus's gospel doesn't involve people staying poor. You might have never heard that, but let me show you how. Acts 2, 42, verses, Acts 2, chapter 42, verse 45. This is one for the books for you to remember. It explains the behaviors of the local church when it first started. Like the Spirit came in Acts chapter 2, and then this was the result of it. This is how church is supposed to look. It says, number one, they devoted themselves to apostle teaching and fellowship. Okay, reading the Bible, I mean, like, you know, teaching, hearing scripture, coming together, kind of what we do at church. The breaking of the bread and prayer. Okay, gathering people's meet on homes, eat meals together, and pray together, right? Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. This is where we start to feel like it's optional. Miracles, signs, and wonders accompanied the filling of the sign of the Holy Spirit. It goes on to say, all believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. It didn't say all their property. It said they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Anyone? Like anyone? Did I just read 
that they shared their way out of poverty? Hmm. I wasn't going to say this before, but it was in my Bible commentary, and I thought, wow, this is pretty good. Eight reasons why we make excuses for not helping the poor and needy. Here's one. They don't deserve help. They got themselves into trouble. Two, God's help was for that time. It's different now. Three, I don't really know anyone who's struggling. Like, I don't even know anybody who's going through this. Four, I got a lot on my plate right now. I've said this. I got a lot on my plate right now. I don't need, I got a lot going on. I can't. Five, any money that I have is just going to get wasted, stolen, or spent, and poor people will never actually see it. Six, if I try to help, maybe I'll be able to become a victim. Like, if I go to help, maybe I'll get robbed or something's going to happen to me. Seven, I don't know where to start, and I literally have no time for this at all. And the last one, my little bit will not really make a real difference. But the Bible is asking of us in 1 John 3, 16 to 18. This is a hard one. Man, this is hard. We know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or a sister in need but shows no compassion, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let us show truth by our actions. But how? Check your uh, sermon notes. Everybody got sermon notes? Hold it up in the air if you got one. On the end of those sermon notes are the keys that someone else needs from you to be lifted out of poverty. Here's a few things you can do. If you're into real estate, who's ever bought a house? You ever sold a house? Raise your hand. You're a real estate agent. Welcome to the business. Who's actual real estate agents in here? If you've ever done that or you know about that, teach someone who doesn't have money how to do real estate, the process of getting licensed, how to own and how to manage property. Property is wealth. I'm going to shout out one family in here. Me and my wife had heard, learned some quick things, and this is not in my message, but me and my wife had learned some things like, oh, real estate, like, oh, wow, like you could, you know, leverage your home, use equity, all these words. I'm like, whoa, this is a lot of information. And there was a gentleman I heard of in the church, owned some properties, and I'm not even going to point him out because you might run after him for some money or something. But I said, man, I want to learn. He's a very, you know, dry humor kind of guy. He said, come to my house. I'll go to his house. He has a whole PowerPoint. He lays out the whole thing for me. My mind is cooked. And I'm like, I'm going to tell everybody that I know who doesn't know about this, who's been renting in New York City for 40 years. And, who's been living under the bondage of debt. I'm going to tell them this information because these are the keys. And he didn't know me at all. If some other things you can do. Teach an investing seminar in a place that's walking distance from an under-resourced area so people can get to it. Teach a seminar at a church, a partner. Again, you can contact me, contact us in these, in this, uh, on the sheet there, the information there. We can get you connected and get some things like that done. Become a lender without interest. Ha-ha. For an entrepreneur in your church that needs startup money. 
I'll let you be convicted and do whatever God calls you to do, if that's you. At Grace, we have something called Job Seekers Network, and that's really cool because it gathers very skilled people that exist in the church, and it attempts to teach other people who don't have skills ways to do well in the marketplace and actually get jobs. It's called the Job Seekers Network. We have that at Grace. And then Envision Cleveland, they're building a similar kind of thing that's going to train people a vocational place, and they need a lot more money to finish that project, and they're also going to need a lot of people to be able to teach trades and teach people how to do different things when the the vocational center is up and ready, but they need capital to finish that. Envision Cleveland, that's a mission organization that exists within our denomination, and we partner with them through uh, Tim Hutchison, who's a, a member here, and through Bethany Bell. Here's my closing story. I met a guy named Martin, and Martin um, approached me. His name is not really Martin. I'm calling him Martin. I was preaching a message um, at men's ministry, and after that message, Martin approached me, and actually, he wanted to offer me some, uh, some constructive criticism, and that's not even easy. I don't even recommend it. If you have something to say to a pastor after a message, just shoot him a nice email, and I'm sure he'll be more than willing to grow off what you send. However, however, Martin approaches me, full of grace, full of truth. Hey, man, I think you said this wrong. You might want to rephrase that. I said, you got it, Martin. You got me there. Thank you. We hit it off a little bit. We decided to get together later on and have some coffee. We go to have some coffee, and Martin brings up race, culture, society, things that I didn't expect, and then we had a great conversation about this. How can we be in more unity? How can we work together as brothers? We literally laughed together and cried together all within the same conversation, And then a couple months later, I see Martin in the hallway. Martin is like, Jelani, I got to tell you something, man. I was driving down the road, and I saw a guy who needed some help. And what came to my mind was something you said while we were sitting down and talking. So I decided that based on what the Spirit had led you to say, I'm going to pull over and ask this guy if he needs help. Martin then asked the guy, do you need help? The guy says, listen, man, my car broke down. I need to go to Walmart. I got like a 25-minute drive or something down the road that I need you. And Martin is thinking what each of you and I would think. What did I just get myself into? I got stuff to do. Like, what in the world? But because he knows he's a transformer, because he knows that the spirit that is in him is greater than the spirit in the world, he sees opportunity. So he complies. Gentleman gets in the car. They go to the store. They're at the store probably for a long time. The guy comes out with two big bags. He puts them in the car, and then they proceed on this 25-minute journey. That 25-minute journey somehow gets another five minutes on it. Then he says, no, it's like 10 minutes further. Then it's another minute further. And now it's a different. Martin is like, hold on a second. I don't know if I'm safe anymore. And now he's in his mind, he's, he's trying to transform like a transformer in the movie. Do I, what can I do to stay alive just in case something goes left here? But that's not how it ends. Eventually the man leads Martin to a spot. He never really gives him a, a straight up address. He gets out the car, he takes his bags, he goes up a steps. Someone opens the door. He gives them a bunch of baby products and stuff, diapers and everything that's in the bag. This guy was trying to do something of dignity for his family. 
He was trying to get to his family so he can get those items to them. And he needed somebody to help him. Martin himself is convicted, but Martin stepped in. And the thing about this kind of work is that you don't know what's in it until you're in it. It's a leap of faith. And I'm not telling you to go find somebody on the side of the road. I'm telling you that you're a transformer, that God has given you his spirit to impact your community, to bump into a person, to see someone who doesn't have, to give resources to a person who doesn't have access to it, because he's called you to transform your community, to change the trajectory and destiny of another person. The question is, will you do it? Did you know that you're a transformer? Let me pray for you. Lord, we're at a fork in the road. And before we make a decision, there's a few things we have to acknowledge. Some of us, including myself, have to repent for the sin of omission. Our comfort has led to maybe apathy and believing the lie that we can't make a dent in the problem of injustice. So let's pray. Dear Father, I think of when Robin was speaking to the worship team and she said that God gave her a picture of how sin had permeated the world so much that people now have allergies. And that sounds crazy, but the way she described it was that creation is attacking itself. And how that plays out today is that we ignore each other. By omission, we essentially attack each other when we're called to lift each other up. But the reality is, Jesus, that we cannot think for a minute that we can do this without the presence and the power of your Holy Spirit. Other than that, if we try to, we still remain self-centered and selfish. So with every eye closed and every head bowed in this room, if you want to ask Jesus for forgiveness from the sin of omission, would you raise your hands? Every eye closed and every head bowed. If you want to ask Jesus for forgiveness for the sin of omission, raise your hands. I'll give some time. You can put your hands down. If you don't know Jesus and you're like stirred up by this message and you feel like, you know what, today I want to I change the rest of my life today. Like I want to I I come to Jesus and I want to have him as my Lord, my Savior, and I want to make an impact in my community. If that's you and you want to give your heart to the Lord to be that person in your community, raise your hand right now. I see those hands. I see those hands. We give God the glory. If maybe you're already in this work and you feel like, man, I think God is telling me to take a leap of faith further than my comfort zone, and he wants me to either do more, back off of something and do another thing, or equip others to do the same. If you're feeling like that's God calling you, would you raise your hands, every eye closed? I see those hands, I see those hands, I see those hands. All right, you can put them down. Friends, if you raise your hands, you can open your eyes. If you raise your hands, you have been made a new creation today. 
And you have taken up your mantle with the Holy Spirit as a transformer. Now transform. Amen.